Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to... Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another week celebrating Pride on the show. I love this month. It's a great one. I really, really enjoy whenever there's like a themed month of some sort because it really helps me narrow down topic ideas that I want to do. It's very, very helpful for me. So especially since we've had so many of those in the last few months, I've been very, very thankful. But we're kind of getting into that non-so-celebratory era, (laughs) which is the summer, uh, where I'm going to just kind of have to think of whatever. But, you know, I really, really want to start the show off by talking about the coming out story episode. And I have not received very many stories at all. And this is one of my favorite episodes. And I don't know if it's because it's just not the same because I don't have a co-host with me at the moment. But I still think that it will be a really, really amazing episode. I do think that there are enough new people out there who are listening that will hopefully want to jump in and send their stories. I know it can be really intimidating or maybe scary, but I hope that there are enough people out there who feel comfortable enough to reach out and share their stories, whether it be anonymously or whether you want to put your name behind it. It really doesn't matter. If you've never listened to one of the past Coming Out Stories episodes, I highly, highly recommend it. The most recent one, that was two years ago, I think, I feel like Keegan and I didn't do one last year for some reason, but maybe we did. Um, But I came out in 2021, I think, on the show. And so, you know, that one a few years ago, you can listen to, and it's a lot of good fun. But anyways, I feel like that episode in particular is just such a favorite of mine. And I'm just a little bummed that it looks like it might possibly not happen if I don't have the stories. I simply can't do the episode. Uh, So if you are on the fence, this is me asking you, please send me your stories. I would truly, truly appreciate it. There's a couple of different ways that you can send your story. You can either email me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at angry neighborhood feminist with your story. It's just such a moving and powerful episode. I feel like whenever there's listener stories that can be shared, I feel like that's where the sense of community is really strong on this show. And that's always been my very, very favorite part. So if there's anything that you do want to send me, please, I will be more than happy to share it on this show. And I'm really hoping that we can have another really, really great episode this year. I also want to talk a little bit about Patreon. I am almost done reading Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit, and oh my goodness, it is so good. It was a little bit difficult for me to get into at first, and then once I got into it, I was hooked. And yesterday, I was very hungover, so I didn't really have energy to do much. So for like half the day, I just sat on the couch with my legs on Penny reading that book, and I I binge read that shit. <laughs> it was so, so good. Unfortunately, Max came home before I could finish it, and there was some other work I had to get done. So I didn't actually finish the entire book, but I'm very, very close to it. I'll probably finish it today at some point, but I'm really, really enjoying it. I'm really, really excited to do some further digging and research on the book. And the first episode covering that book, which by the way is by Jeanette Winterson, will be up this week on Patreon. As usual, I will kind of keep you in the loop, but I like to have them uploaded usually by Wednesday or Thursday. Like I've been mentioning a little bit off and on on the show, I am working on a new project. So sometimes my schedule is a little bit crazy, 
but I want to make sure that I am getting my Patreon episodes out to you all because you are giving me money and support and I greatly appreciate that. And if there's anyone out there who does want to further support the show or who wants to get some extra content, I greatly implore you to join the Angry Feminist Book Club or to join the Feminist Faves level on Patreon. When you join the book club, you will already have two episodes covering three different books all ready for you in the backlog, and you will receive two episodes a month on whatever book I'm covering. But if you join the $8 Feminist Faves level, you're part of the book club, but then you also get these episodes ad-free. It is a wonderful place to be. I definitely encourage you to hop on board if that's something that you're interested in or if it's something that you're financially able to do. No pressure. But it is a really, really great way to be able to support the show. And I really, really appreciate it. And I'm not going to save this for the end. I'm just going to get my whole spiel over with at the beginning. If you love the show and you haven't left a review, I would greatly appreciate you going over to Apple Podcasts and leaving me a five-star review with a quick sentence about why you enjoy the show. It seems like a lot of you are rating on Spotify, which I really appreciate. Keep doing it. But it also is a very, very great help for you to go over and review over on Apple Podcasts as well, simply because it does have that little feature where you can add a little sentence. It kind of gives people that final push to be able to press play on an episode and be interested. Share the show with your friends, an episode that you think they would be interested interested in. Yeah, I would just really, really appreciate more of your love and support. Not like you don't already give me enough. What am I asking for the world from you? I'm sorry. Okay, well, today's episode is one that I cannot believe we haven't done yet on this show. (laughs) This is a story I feel like that is so prominent when we talk about the history of gay rights in particular, and I am going to be discussing the murder of Matthew Shepard. And before I get going into the episode, clearly because we are discussing a murder, I do want to give a quick trigger warning that there is some graphic discussion of this murder. There is also a lot of discussion of homophobia, hate crimes, even some sexual assault. And so if that is going to be something that you're going to have a difficult time listening to, it's totally okay if you skip out on this episode. I completely understand. But listen with caution if you do want to go ahead and listen to this absolutely amazing story because even though it is so unbelievably tragic, his story did help change a lot of America's thinking about what it meant to be gay. It changed America's thinking of what a hate crime was, and it helped eventually change legislation. Matthew Shepard died on October 12, 1998, at only 21 years old after being brutally attacked, tortured, and left for dead by two men who had tied him to a fence in Laramie, Wyoming, on the night of October 6, 1998. His body was found by a cyclist who had mistaken his body for a scarecrow. When he was taken to the hospital, they found that Matt had suffered fractures of the back of his head and the front of his right ear. He experienced severe brainstem damage, which affected his body's ability to regulate his heart rate, body temperature, and vital functions. There were also about a dozen small lacerations around his head, face, and neck. His injuries were deemed too severe for doctors to operate, and he would remain on full life support. There's a quick synopsis about what happens to Matthew. But in order to truly understand why his story is so impactful, of course, we have to go back to the beginning of his story. The world knew him as Matthew Shepard, but in my research, I learned that pretty much everyone called him Matt. And because I watched this amazing documentary done by his friend, which is called Matthew Shepard is a Friend of Mine, where everybody was calling him Matt, it kind of rubbed off on me as well. So my notes slowly go from calling him Matthew to Matt. The documentary was created by one of his childhood friends, Michelle Josu. It's a really, really amazing film, and it's one that I'd never seen before this week, but I was still very aware of its existence and the contents of the documentary because it was covered by my favorite podcast, True Crime Obsessed. 
years ago where they covered the story of the documentary. And I also mentioned very recently that the host of that show, one of the hosts of that show, Patrick, is a gay man. And he's also very, very knowledgeable when it comes to gay history and all of that kind of stuff. So that's always been one of my favorite episodes because I feel like Patrick really had a lot to add to the conversation. And the story really, really stuck with me. And everything that happened in that documentary really stuck with me. So I was excited to watch it for the first time and actually see everything that I had heard about for the first time and experience it in a different way. And it was such a moving documentary. I highly, highly recommend watching it. Matt was born in 1976 in Casper, Wyoming, the first of two sons for Judy and Dennis Shepard. His younger brother, Logan, came along in 1981 when Matthew was four. The two brothers were incredibly close, but they were completely opposite of one another. Matt was small and on the shyer side, while his brother was bigger in stature, athletic, and outgoing. Only child here, but I feel like having an older sibling that was the more like large and outgoing one would be really, really intimidating. I feel like we expect the older sibling to be the more overbearing one or the more athletic and successful one. And I don't really know why that is, but I am very fascinated by birth order. And I feel like a lot of times families do kind of line up in certain like stereotypes. And it's interesting how that happens. But Obviously, every family, every person is different, and I wonder how Matt felt about his younger brother kind of possibly portraying more masculine energy, dominant energy, especially Matt knowing he was gay and what that stigma held about his masculinity. And kids suck, so they definitely made fun of him for being non-athletic and small, you know? So... Quick side story, Max was born really, really prematurely, so he was a very, very, very small child and eventually took growth hormones in order to grow to like a normal-sized child, and he eventually just decided to stop taking them. He's like, I'm tall enough, whatever, and I love that I have had a lot of men in my life who have really disproven that stereotype of like needing to be super big and tall and having that be an attachment to your masculinity in some way. But I mean, I grew up teeny tiny and I was made fun of even though I'm a girl, woman, you know, <laughs> like it, pe- kids are just going to find something to tease you about. And I think it really does depend on like what type of person you are with how you respond. Because someone like Max was like, what, like, shut the fuck up. It doesn't matter. But someone like me, when I would get teased, was like, my world was ending and I couldn't possibly cope with it. So I was a very, very, very easy, easy target. Matt also had a little brown stuffed bunny rabbit named Oscar that he took with him everywhere. And I wanted to interject this now because it does become very important in his story and I didn't know where else to add that little piece of information. He was also a very thoughtful child and very, very kind. He would write poems for his neighbors and leave them in their mailboxes when he was little until his postmaster grandfather ruined the fun and told him it was illegal to stick letters in people's mailboxes without a stamp. So Matt decided that he would leave nice little rocks in his neighbor's mailboxes instead. This is a nicer version of something that I did when I was a kid because I would sell things to my neighbors up at the cabin. There was like a row of five houses or so on this little patch of beach and we all knew each other really, really well. And I would make either like painted rocks or clay figures or whatever the fuck craft I was doing that week. And I would go around door to door to each of the cabins where, you know, if they were sitting outside, I would kind of bring up my merchandise and sell them to my neighbors for between like 10 cents and 25 cents or something like that. And it's funny because like whenever my mom is in touch with any of those people, they're like, oh, I still have Maddie's painted rock on my mantelpiece or something like that. And it's it's so funny to me. But yeah, I had more of an entrepreneurial mindset, I guess, where Matt was just being nice. Matt was also a really, really smart kid and became interested in politics at a really early age. A lot of his friends and family said that he wanted to grow up to be like a diplomat or work in some sort of political sphere. He was raised Episcopalian and served as an altar boy in church. His father described him as an optimistic and accepting young man who had a special gift of relating to almost everyone. He was the type of person who was very approachable and always looked to new challenges. 
Though they were a religious family, it seems that Judy and Dennis always let their kids be themselves. And this is evident when Judy was telling the documentary crew that Matt's favorite Halloween costume was Dolly Parton. She said that he wouldn't even wait for Halloween to practice. So, yeah, they knew he was gay. But Matt didn't know that his parents knew, or even if they would accept him for it or not. But there was one adult in his life that he could turn to for advice on this topic. His school counselor, Walt Bolden. Walt was a gay man who came out later in life after being married and having children, and it was Walt who Matt first came out to. Walt will also become a very, very important player in Matt's story. Here's a little bit about what Matt thought of himself. In the documentary, his friend reads a passage from his journal. It says, I am funny and sometimes messy, forgetful and lazy. I'm not a lazy person, though. I'm giving an understanding and formal and polite and sensitive. I'm honest. I'm sincere. I am not a pest. It goes on, ending with loving airports and hugs. Matthew's dad worked as an oil safety engineer, and in 1994, he was hired for a job in Saudi Arabia. So, the Shepherd family packed up and moved across the world to start a new adventure as a family. There was no higher education available for Matt that was in English, where the family lived. So Matthew attended the American school in Switzerland, which was about a four and a half hour plane ride away from his family in Saudi Arabia. He really liked the school, and it seems like everyone really liked him as well as he was voted friendliest in the class. He got really involved at the school as well. He participated in theater and took German and Italian lessons. Unfortunately, during his year studying at boarding school, he would go through a traumatic event. This school gave their students an opportunity to travel in order to further learn about other cultures they're interested in. The trips were usually contained to Europe, but Matt and a few friends asked the school if they could go to Morocco. The kids were definitely shocked by such a different culture than they were used to, and for the most part, they stuck together. But one night, Matt went out on his own. Later on, he came into his friend's room in the middle of the night wearing no shoes and no shirt, screaming. He told them between screams that he had been beaten and raped. He told his friends that he had gone out to let off some steam, but he was pulled into an alley by a group of six men who robbed, beat, and raped him. Matt's friends who were with him on the trip wonder if in hindsight Matt saw this trip as an opportunity to go out and fully be himself in a place where no one knew who he was. He made his friends promise not to tell anyone. But unfortunately, Matt changed a lot after Morocco. After the attack, he began experiencing panic attacks and depression and was hospitalized a few times for his depression as well as suicidal ideation. That wasn't something that was discussed in the documentary by his parents directly. This was something that I found online. And I find it interesting that if this was something that happened, that it wasn't mentioned because it doesn't seem like, at least from the lens of the documentary, like his parents knew what had happened to him in Morocco. He didn't want to do theater anymore. He didn't like being in big crowds. And those who knew him said that even his posture changed and he no longer stood tall and confidently, but slouched. Those who loved him tried to reach him, but he didn't want to talk about his changes. Allegedly, again, I read this online, nothing was mentioned about this in the documentary because it is such a, I guess, hot-button issue with this case. His family also suspects that he may have been relying on illegal drugs to relieve his inner pain. The reason that's a bit controversial is because a few years back, a book came out called The Book of Matt, Hidden Truths About the Murder of Matthew Shepard, by a guy named Stephen Jimenez, which told a very different story of how Matt died, which I will get into later, and it relied heavily on the fact that Matt had been using drugs like heroin and meth. After graduating in 1995, he moved back to the States and attended a college in North Carolina for a little bit, then back home in Casper for a brief time as well, before settling in Denver for about a year. He seemed to be wandering around searching for the best fit for himself. When he lived in Denver, it seems like he was living a slightly more out life, but friends who knew him at the time say that he went into a really deep depression. His apartment was always trashed, he wasn't bathing regularly, and he wasn't feeding himself properly either. They said there was either food all over the apartment, old food most likely, or he had absolutely no food in the house. There was once a leak in the radiator where he threw towels and clothes over to sop up the water instead of actually fixing the problem. He would isolate from his friends and they wouldn't hear from him for days and eventually they would find him holed up in his dank apartment. According to a friend, he went to a church in Denver wanting to speak to someone there about being gay. There was apparently a woman there who was really mean to him, saying that gay people were going to hell and other hateful things. 
He finally felt like he found his place at Wyoming University, which was a shock to some of his friends who weren't from Wyoming. But for those who knew him as a child, they saw why it was a good fit for him. It was his counselor, Walt, who suggested the move. The town where the college was located, Laramie, was a much slower-moving town and much more conservative than Denver. I imagine coming out of his shell a bit in Denver than having to come back to a place like Laramie would have been really intimidating. I wonder what his pros and cons list was. There was a small group of gay people in Laramie who had an LGBT group at the college, and Matt decided to join. He was the new kid on campus, being like, I want to be part of the gay group, which, according to a friend from college, was rare for someone who was so new to want to join the group of outcasts. Matt even recommended a mentorship program for older students to take newer students under their wing to show them the ropes, whether it's about being gay or not. This friend actually refers to Matt as a pocket gay or travel-sized in the documentary. It's so cute. He's like, it's like a little pocket gay. And what's funny is that in complete juxtaposition, this friend is like what I feel like the gay community would consider a bear. He is like a taller, bigger, hairier, like teddy bear of a guy. So to imagine the two of them together, the documentarian's like, I bet you were quite a pair. And he was like, oh, yeah, we were quite a pair. Matt came out to his mom when he was a freshman in college. Of course, due to his love of Dolly, she already knew. Matt asked her not to tell his dad that he wanted to do it himself. But Judy worried that Dennis would get caught off guard and say the wrong thing. So she decided to tell Dennis ahead of time. Truthfully, I'm an advocate for a child coming out to their parent on their own. But I also see that sometimes the spouse or someone else that's close to the other parent may see that they might not react in the best way and maybe completely unintentionally they'll have the best of intentions with their response, but maybe they'll still say the wrong thing or make it uncomfortable. So I am really glad that Judy did this, even though usually I would say, you know, let let the person come out to you. Don't do it for them. That's a pretty big no-no. But since Judy had prepped him, Dennis responded totally nonchalantly, which I really wish people wouldn't do. Like, you don't have to make the biggest deal about it and embarrass the kid. But instead of saying something like, I don't care that you're gay, try saying something like, thank you so much for trusting me with such a special part of who you are. I love you. A few weeks before Matt was killed, he told his counselor that he felt like he was finally finding happiness there in Laramie. He felt like he was making good friends, and those around him felt like he was in the best shape mentally that he'd been in years. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash realm hey there this is justin bartha i made a funny new podcast king of the egg cream it has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like lewis black i'm torn by my feelings for two women bobby cannavale you can eat it or if someone hits you you can put it on your cut 
Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. On the night of October 6th, 1998, Matt had just attended an LGBT group meeting at the college, but he wasn't ready to go home yet and wanted to go out and get a drink. His friends passed up on the offer, so he headed to the fireside bar by himself, which according to the bartender who worked at the bar, that wasn't uncommon for Matt. I see myself and Matt. I too love to just walk up to a bar, have a couple beers. I might pull a book out. I might just hang out. I don't know, but it is kind of relaxing just to kind of like be around other people, but not necessarily have to socialize, but also have the opportunity to socialize if that opportunity arises. I don't know. I feel this. I would love to have sat at a bar and chatted with Matt Shepard for sure. The bartender said that he had been working for a few hours already when Matt came in around 8 p.m., At around 11 p.m., Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson walk into the bar and ordered a pitcher of beer. According to McKinney and Henderson, they noticed Matt and figured he had money and that he was gay, so they went to the bathroom and concocted a plan to pretend that they were gay to gain his trust, then rob him. The bartender then remembers Matt mingling with other patrons, then starting a conversation with McKinney and Henderson. After a while, the bartender saw all three of them walk out together, Then, according to a quote from the killers, they let Matt in on the fact that they weren't gay and said to him, you're going to get jacked. McKinney then began to beat Matt while Henderson drove McKinney's truck. McKinney was reaching for Matt's wallet, which he handed over right away, but that didn't stop the beating. They then drove out to a prairie where the two men dragged Matt out of the truck. We know that Matt fought like hell and really struggled. They found his watch at the crime scene later, and it must have fallen off in the altercation. They eventually wrestled Matt to the fence and tied him to it. Then they began beating him again. This time, one of them was beating him with the butt of a three fifty seven Magnum gun. Matt received 18 blows to the head and face. He retained four skull fractures. He was bruised on the backs of his hands, indicating that he was trying to protect himself and there was also bruising around the groin, showing that he had been kicked repeatedly. The final blow, which was behind his right ear, the butt of the gun crushed his brainstem and tore his ear away. This hit was fatal, but he held on. Eighteen hours later, Matt was found by the cyclist. It was late afternoon, and Matt was barely hanging on to life, still tied to the fence. The officer who came to the scene described it being incredibly bloody, and that Matt had dried blood all over him, except for two lines down his cheeks, where he had been crying. They brought him to the hospital, where he was put into a coma and on life support. There was a chance that his body may stay alive, but his brain and his mind may not. It was 5 a.m. in Saudi Arabia when Matt's parents were contacted and told that their son had been injured, and they didn't know if he would survive. So they hopped on a plane and headed home as a family. When they got this first call, they had assumed that it must have been a car accident. But when Matt's dad spoke with his wife's sister on the phone, she told him that Matt's story was all over the news. Why would his son's story be on the news if it was a car accident? This was when Dennis first suspected that there was more to the story. I really wish someone had briefed the family immediately on what was going on with their son. They didn't know exactly what happened, but they could have at least told them where he was found and the state that he was in, so they weren't completely surprised by the details later on like they were. When the Shepard family arrived at the hospital, Matt's brother Logan didn't want to go in right away. He worried about what he would see when he looked at his big brother now. Law enforcement began their case to find whoever attacked Matt as soon as he was found. Right away, they claimed robbery as the motive, but the gay community in Laramie wasn't ready for Matt's story to be whitewashed and changed, and they wanted to convince them to charge whoever did this with a hate crime. According to the counselor, Walt, no one would be beaten like that over $20. To do what he could to help, Walt began reaching out to people he knew who had access to national news networks to get Matt's story out to the nation. And once the story was out, the press immediately picked it up and descended upon Laramie, Wyoming. 
Before we go further into the story and discuss the arrests, I want to talk a bit about the culture in Laramie regarding the LGBTQ plus community. Though Matt found his people when he was attending college, the town as a whole seems to have been very homophobic. In Laramie, a billboard message was altered in December 1993 to proclaim, under the brace of pistols, shoot a gay or two. This was up in Laramie at a time when Matt's attackers were teenagers, and that message greeted hundreds of drivers daily for over a month until a visiting gay activist finally removed it. According to Brian Levin, director of the Center of Hate and Extremism at Stockton College, said at the time of the crime, Young people are a sponge for rhetoric that goes through society, from a billboard to the dinner table. These young men could actually believe they are doing the bidding of their overall community. According to a New York Times article from 1998, two months before he was killed, Matt was involved in another altercation with a man who claims that he hit Matt because he had flirted with him. Karen Franklin, a forensic psychologist, says this, unfortunately, is common. They say, once someone is labeled as homosexual, any glance or conversation by that person is perceived as sexual flirtation. Flirtation, in turn, is viewed as a legitimate reason to assault. If that was the case, then women would never be charged with murder when it was actually self-defense. At the time of Matt's death, 80 to 90 percent of the people arrested for, quote, gay bashing in the United States were young men. And I can only assume that they were probably young white men. And the culture of the time didn't help sway people against this behavior. In fact, it encouraged violent behavior. While the nation was becoming more and more invested in Matt, Matt's family was trying to decide what to do about their son's life. Keep him attached to machines or let him go. When law enforcement was interviewed for the documentary, they were saying that, as horrible as it sounds, Matt's body was evidence, and it could give them information about how exactly he was killed and maybe who did it with an autopsy. Dennis thought that maybe Matt would respond to some comforts from home, so he went to the storage unit they had back in Casper, Wyoming, and began searching for Oscar the bunny. He pulled out every single box in that unit, but he couldn't find Oscar. Dennis said in the documentary, with Oscar obviously having been found and in the forefront of the shot. In a way, I regret I couldn't find Oscar. And in a way, I think it was God telling me, you keep Oscar for yourself. You need to have something to remind you of the good days. Judy and Dennis then decided to call Matt's counselor, Walt, and asked him to come and speak with Matt. Walt spoke with the unconscious Matt and told him that he wouldn't be forgotten. He was famous now, just as he'd always wanted. He said that for the sake of his mom and dad, he had to let go. He couldn't put them through any more pain by forcing them to make the decision. Waltz left, and Matt died on October 12, 1998, at 12.53 a.m. the next morning, with his family holding his hands. According to Walt, Matt was the 33rd gay man to be killed that year. This was just the first time that the country was taking notice. Celebrities came to mourn him and speak their minds about the homophobia that led to a young man's death. President Clinton even made a statement. It says this, I was deeply grieved by the act of violence perpetrated against Matthew Shepard of Wyoming. The Justice Department has assured me that local law enforcement officials are proceeding diligently to bring those responsible to justice, and I am determined that we will do everything we can and offer whatever assistance is appropriate. Hillary and I ask your thoughts and your prayers be with Mr. Shepard and his family and with the people of Laramie, Wyoming. In the face of this terrible act of violence, they are joining together to demonstrate that an act of evil like this is not what our country is about. In fact, it strikes at the very heart of what it means to be an American and at the values that define us as a nation. We must all reaffirm that we will not tolerate this. Just this year, there have been a number of recent tragedies across our country that involve hate crimes, the vicious murder of James Byrd last June in Jasper, Texas, and the assault this week on Mr. Shepard are only among the most horrifying examples. Almost one year ago, I proposed that Congress enact the Hate Crimes Prevention Act. Our federal laws already punish some crimes committed against people on the basis of race or religion or national origin, but we should do more. This crucial legislation would strengthen and expand the ability of the Justice Department to prosecute hate crimes by removing needless jurisdictional requirements for existing crimes and by giving federal prosecutors the power to prosecute hate crimes committed because of the victim's sexual orientation, gender, or disability. 
all Americans deserve protection from hate. There is nothing more important to the future of this country than our standing together against intolerance, prejudice, and violent bigotry. It is not too late for Congress to take action before they adjourn and pass the Hate Crimes Prevention Act. By doing so, they will help make all Americans more safe and more secure. Gosh, it's really interesting to listen to that speech made by a president in 1998 speak on the fact that that's un-American in some way, that a hate crime would be un-American because I feel like it's incredibly American. It's very, very American. It's very embedded into the history of this country, but it definitely was the narrative that was played when I was growing up constantly was that, you know, we're the good guys. We're the not racist ones. Like, Maybe we've learned from our mistakes. I don't know. But that very much was the narrative that's like, no, we're we're not the place for hate. What? Us? No, absolutely not. And while Clinton is problematic as hell, I do really appreciate the fact that he did seem to have a very empathetic heart when it came to victims because he did pass a lot of really great legislation and this was something that he cared a lot about. But unfortunately, as we'll get into a little bit later on in the episode, he was not fully successful during his presidency. So now I want to get into the fact of why... Matt's story in particular made such an impact on the nation and on the world and why he is so remembered to this day. While the circumstances of this story are absolutely horrific, and I would hope that if any victim, no matter the color of their skin, their nationality, their country of origin, I really hope that any victim who suffered this kind of abuse and torture would be treated with this much sympathy and sadness because I don't know if that's necessarily always been the case. And I think that it's really important to point out the fact that Matthew Shepard was a white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, very, very handsome young man, which we all know has always garnered more attention than the attacks and deaths of gay men of color. But one of the reasons why this story made such an impact was because there were so many white Americans that were finally able to see themselves in this story. It's so unfortunate that, you know, this excuse comes up again and again whenever, you know, men in particular discuss, you know, say sexual assault against women. They're like, I have a daughter. I have a mother. You know, that's why I care. There's this strange thing where it's almost like people have to know someone directly to actually feel sympathy for someone's situation or sympathy for someone who is attacked and killed. I don't know if this would have happened to a young black gay man, if this would have received the media attention that it did. I think that it also is greatly affected by the fact that, you know, he comes from a, you know, upper middle class white family as well that goes on to continue his activism. And that is a more palatable image overall in America, unfortunately, when we learn these stories. We like to hear about tragedy from people who at least look like they're the perfect victims. And the perfect victim in American society is usually white, unfortunately. So I did want to mention that because I think that it's really, really important to recall because if there were all of these other people who were killed because of hate crimes in the year of 1998, along with Matthew Shepard, I think it's important to stop and think about why Matt's story was so influential compared to the others. We could also point out the fact that his counselor really made a point in reaching out to the media and that his parents had this real relentless pursuit of justice and making sure that other young LGBTQ youth felt safe and supported. So I don't know. It's really interesting, though, but I do know that this story would not have been as nationally and internationally beloved if Matt was not white. So I did want to mention that. The perpetrators were finally found and were hiding out with their girlfriends. When they were discovered, all four of them were arrested. Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson were initially charged with attempted murder, kidnapping, and aggravated robbery. When Matt died, the charges were adjusted to make the attempted murder charge a first-degree murder charge, meaning they were both eligible for the death penalty. 
The killer's girlfriends, Kristen Price and Chastity Paisley, were also charged with being accessories after the fact. Oh, and McKinney and Kristen had a four-month-old baby at the time. That poor fucking child. This is why abortion access is necessary. Kristen Price told officers that in explaining the violence, McKinney had told her, well, you know how I feel about the gays. Chastity would be sentenced to 15 months to two years in prison for helping to destroy the bloody clothing of her boyfriend, Russell Henderson, that he wore during the attack. Aaron McKinney's girlfriend, Kristen, who was only 18 at the time, pled guilty to a misdemeanor charge of interfering with a police officer. Her charge was reduced from the accessory after the fact charge after a deal with prosecutors to be a witness against her boyfriend. She was then sentenced to 180 days in jail, or roughly six months, but she received 120 days of credit for the time already served following her arrest, and the remaining 60 days were suspended. What the fuck? At first, when he was arrested, Aaron wasn't admitting to the crime, so they gave him some time in his cell, let him get some sleep, and when they brought him out and gave him his Miranda rights, he confessed to everything and told the cops his side of the story. Henderson avoided a trial by pleading guilty to murder and kidnapping charges, and in order to avoid the death penalty, he agreed to testify against Aaron as well. Russell Henderson was sentenced to two consecutive life terms. Aaron McKinney's trial began in October 1999. Prosecutor Cal Rurucha told the story of Aaron and Russell pretending to be gay to gain Matt's trust. Kristen Price testifies to this when she said that Aaron and Russell had pretended they were gay to get Matt in the truck to rob him. In response, Aaron McKinney's lawyer put forward the gay panic defense, arguing that his client was driven temporarily insane by the alleged sexual advances by Matt. Thankfully, this defense was rejected by the judge. I feel like I've discussed the gay panic defense on the show before, and it's pretty self-explanatory, but essentially it's like this person was so terrified that they were driven crazy in the moment because this gay person was flirting with them or presumed to be flirting with them that they freaked out and killed them. And this was actually a legitimate offense in a lot of murders, in a lot of assault cases, and it's... Absolutely ridiculous, clearly. Though Matt's friends and family tried so hard to keep his sexuality as part of the conversation, the prosecutor argued that the killing was driven by the greed and vengeance of the perpetrators rather than by Matt's sexuality. I wonder if he was trying to keep sexuality out of the conversation in general so that the defense couldn't keep using it in their arguments. I don't know, but I feel like there has to be a reason, or maybe they were just homophobic themselves. Thankfully, the jury found Aaron McKinney guilty of felony murder, and they began to deliberate the death penalty. The Shepard family, according to a reporter in a segment of the documentary, were pro-death penalty at the time. So what they decided to do next was completely unexpected. For his victim impact statement, Dennis Shepard got up and directly spoke to Aaron McKinney. He said this, My son Matthew did not look like a winner. After all, he was small for his age weighing at most 110 pounds and standing over 5 foot 2 inches tall. He was rather uncoordinated and wore braces from the age of 13 to the day he died. However, in his all-too-brief life, he proved that he was a winner. My son, a gentle, caring soul, proved that he was as tough as, if not tougher, than anyone I have ever heard of or known. On October 12th, my firstborn son and my hero died 50 days before his 22nd birthday, with his mother and brother holding his hand. He actually died on the outskirts of Laramie when you beat him. You left him out there by himself, but he wasn't alone. There were his lifelong friends with him. First, he had the beautiful night sky, the same stars and moon that we used to look at through the telescope. Then he had the daylight and the sun to shine on him one more time, one more cool, wonderful autumn day in Wyoming. He heard the wind, the ever-present Wyoming wind, for the last time. He had one more friend with him. He had God. I feel better knowing he wasn't alone. Mr. McKinney, I'm going to grant you life, as hard as that is for me to do, because of Matthew. Every time you celebrate Christmas, a birthday, or the 4th of July, remember that Matt isn't. Mr. McKinney, I give you life in the memory of one who no longer lives. May you have a long life, and may you thank Matthew every day for it. 
Aaron McKinney received two life sentences. Now, I don't want to give this next part too much time, but I do want to go over Jimenez's theory, which is super popular and out there, so I feel the need to address it. In the book, Matthew's Story by Stephen Jimenez, he claims that Matt was addicted to and dealing crystal meth and dabbling with heroin. He also reported that Matt took some risks, sexually, and was being, quote, pimped alongside of one of his killers, Aaron McKinney, with whom he'd had sexual encounters with. They also report that Matt was HIV positive at the time of his death. Jimenez is convinced that people cover this information up about Matt in order to make him the perfect poster boy for the gay rights movement. Jimenez alleges that McKinney and Henderson knew that Matt had access to a shipment of crystal meth with a street value of $10,000 that they wanted to steal from him. In a line from an article in The Guardian from 2014, Somewhere along the line, however, Matthew fell from being a grade-A student to a drug-addicted prostitute who diced with danger. That is just gross. Even if parts of that story was true, how dare you talk about someone like that? It's just so minimizing. In a report from 2020 after the trial, one of the perpetrator's girlfriends told reporters that she had lied about the men being motivated by Matt's sexuality, and instead it was a drug-related robbery gone wrong. Like I mentioned earlier in the episode, it seems like allegedly Matt did get into some drugs at some point after his attack in Morocco, but the long and entangled web that Jimenez describes just seems too off the wall to me. Occam's razor tells us that the most likely scenario is the simplest one. In response to the book, I just don't believe that there was this huge conspiracy where Matt knew his attackers before because that doesn't really jive with the story that the bartender is telling about them having interacted with each other at the bar because it doesn't seem like they knew each other and if they were both being quote-unquote pimped out if they were you know part of some sort of sex trafficking thing I don't necessarily know if they would be like hey man what's up at the bar I don't know it all just seems really, really dark and shady. And that's not to say that, you know, maybe a little bit of this could be true. Like maybe there was a drug world that Matt was involved in, but he didn't necessarily know these two people. Or if he did, it was maybe very, very briefly because he was struggling. I mean, a lot of people who go through traumatic events like sexual assault, and unfortunately, a lot of people that feel that they're unable to come out or live authentically as themselves in the LGBTQ plus community will also turn to drugs as a way to nurture themselves and heal themselves through their pain. And I don't judge anybody for any of those things because sometimes we all have really negative coping mechanisms in our lives and it just depends on what we choose. Drugs are unfortunately just really, really dangerous and scary. So do I believe this entire conspiracy about the attackers knowing Matt and them being trafficked out and yada, yada, yada? No. They go on to state that McKinney and Matt had had a sexual relationship. I don't really buy it. I don't know. Like this guy is saying that he has all these interviews and sources and things like that, but it just doesn't seem plausible to me. And it just seems like a smear campaign. In response to the book, the Matthew Shepard Foundation released this statement. Attempts now to rewrite the story of this hate crime appear to be based on untrustworthy sources, factual errors, rumors, and innuendo, rather than the actual evidence gathered by law enforcement and presented in a court of law. We do not respond to innuendo, rumor, or conspiracy theories. Instead, we recommit ourselves to honoring Matthew's memory and refuse to be intimidated by those who seek to tarnish it. We owe that to the tens of thousands of donors, activists, volunteers, and allies to the cause of equality who have made our work possible. When the trial was over, Judy and Dennis decided that they had to do their part to continue to attract public attention and media coverage in order to help prevent further hate crimes. In the years following, Judy has worked as an advocate for LGBTQ plus rights, particularly focusing on issues regarding gay youth. In December 1998, she and Dennis created the Matthew Shepard Foundation, which is a nonprofit organization which runs education, outreach, and advocacy programs. 
The Matthew Shepard Foundation has online and offline programs designed to raise awareness of anti-violence and promote human dignity for everyone by engaging in schools, colleges, companies, and individuals in dialogues. Matthew's Place is the online community designed to provide teens and young adults with support, and it provides blogs written for young people across the United States, as well as resources for those who are struggling with coming out or reconciling their faith and their sexual orientation or identity. Judy, along with other members of the foundation, also travel around to schools around the country to talk about the impact that hate has on a community. While they were doing their best to raise awareness and help change the stigma that gay people held in this country, there were counter-protesters being absolutely despicable. On the day of Matt's funeral, members of the Westboro Baptist Church picketed outside with signs bearing homophobic slogans such as, Matt in hell and God hates the F-word. They also mounted anti-gay protests during McKinney and Henderson's trials. To counter this, Romaine Patterson, one of Matt's friends, organized a group that assembled in a circle around these protesters. This group wore white robes and large wings, so they resembled angels to block out the protesters and help drown out the negative noise. Thankfully, at Matt's funeral, police eventually intervened. This was when Romaine decided to create Angel Action. In 2000, a play by Moises Kaufman and members of the Tectonic Theater Project wrote a play about the reaction to Matt's murder. This play would be called The Laramie Project. They drew on hundreds of interviews conducted by the theater company with people who lived in the town, company members' own journal entries, and published news reports. Its first production went up in Denver, Colorado in February 2000. The play is often used as a method to teach about prejudice and tolerance in a personal way. Ten years after Matt's murder, the Tectonic Theater Project returned to Laramie to conduct a follow-up interview with residents featured in the play. Those interviews were compiled to create another production, The Laramie Project Ten Years Later, which appeared in over 150 theaters across the country and internationally on October 12, 2009, the 11th anniversary of Matt's death. Requests for new legislation to address hate crimes really gained momentum after the coverage of Matt's story. As under the existing law in both the United States federal law and Wyoming state law, crimes committed on the basis of sexual orientation could not be prosecuted as hate crimes. After the trials, a bill was introduced which defined certain attacks motivated by a victim's sexual orientation as hate crimes in the state of Wyoming. President Clinton renewed attempts to extend federal hate crime legislation to include gay people, women, and people with disabilities. The Hate Crime Prevention Act was reintroduced into the Senate and the House in March of 1999. It was passed by the Senate alone in July 1999. Eight years later, in March 2007, the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crime Prevention Act was finally introduced into U.S. Congress. James Byrd Jr. was also mentioned in President Clinton's statement, and he was a black man who was murdered by three white men in Jasper, Texas on June 7, 1998. His murderers were the first white men to be sentenced to death for killing a black person in the history of modern Texas. The bill passed in the House on May 3, 2007, and similar legislation was passed in the Senate September 27, 2007. However, then-President W. Bush indicated that he would veto the legislation if it ever reached his desk. This made Democratic leadership drop the amendment in response, and it all seemed to halt to a standstill. Why do we do this, Democrats? I don't understand. You're like, oh, the conservatives are angry. Well, then let's just back off a little bit. No, fucking fight hard, fight dirty, use their tactics against them. What are we doing? Speaker Nancy Pelosi, however, stated that she planned to get the bill passed by early 2008, and she was still committed to the act. Finally, once Barack Obama was in the White House, he stated that he was committed to passing the act. And finally, the Senate and House passed bills regarding the act in 2009. Also in 2009, Judy published a biography entitled The Meaning of Matthew, where she speaks about her loss, her family's memories of Matt, and the tragic event that changed their lives and the country. The story follows the Shepard family in the days following the attack, following them to see their incapacitated son kept alive only by machines, It speaks about how the family learned of the public's response and their struggles navigating both their healing and the legal system. 20 years after his death, on October 26, 2018, 
mass ashes were interred at the crypt of Washington National Cathedral, with a ceremony presided over by the first openly gay Episcopal Bishop, Jean Robinson, and the Bishop of Washington, Reverend Marianne Edgar Buddy. Music was performed by the Gay Men's Chorus of Washington, D.C., along with many other performers as well. Matt is still remembered and celebrated to this day, due to his family and loved ones who have worked tirelessly so that he isn't forgotten. Here is what his family has to say about their son's legacy. The life and death of Matthew Shepard changed the way we talk about and deal with hate in America. Since his death, Matt's legacy has challenged and inspired millions of individuals to erase hate in all its forms. Although Matt's life was short, his story continues to have a great impact on young and old alike. His legacy lives on in thousands of people who actively fight to replace hate with understanding, compassion, and acceptance. And that is the story of the life and tragic death of Matthew Shepard. Whenever I cover these stories, when there are horrible hate crimes involved or crimes against humanity, and there's very little legal action done for a really long time, it always reminds me that so much of our progress has been made in a very short amount of time. And I feel like myself and a lot of other people in this country right now are feeling like a lot of those rights are being stripped away from us again. We are seeing that hate is becoming more and more prominent than love and acceptance. It's being celebrated. And We are especially seeing such violence and hatred right now toward the LGBTQ plus community. And there is a growing fear, I feel, in a lot of the community with being celebratory and being out because still to this day in 2023, there are spaces in the world where gay people are not safe, where trans people are not safe, where you can't love somebody or be somebody without the potential of being killed. And I would love to say that Matthew Shepard's murder and everything that followed made such a big difference that this didn't happen anymore or that we viewed gay people with more humanity. And I feel like we do have this idea that, you know, being gay is no big deal anymore. Like everyone is super accepting of it, but they're not. There are still people out there who have this backwards, misunderstood view of it. And I see it every single time I've posted anything regarding the LGBTQ community on my Instagram so far this month. The amount of hatred that is spewed in the comment section just shows me that there are still so many people out there who think the same way that Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson did. In fact, I got a comment yesterday on a post that I made where this person was comparing the trans community to creatures. And the first thing that makes me think of whenever we dehumanize a person because of their identity or sexual orientation or race, so on and so forth, I think about the fact that that's what Hitler did in order to convince an entire group of people that another group of people were lesser than that they were not human. They were inhuman. And that's why it was okay to kill them and to torture them. So to anybody who has that ideal, that a transgender person, that a gay person, that someone who is a little bit different than you is less human, there is no possible way that you can also come at me with your Christianity bullshit talking about it's a sin to be gay. It is actually more of a sin to be dehumanizing people and being so violent. I don't know if that much has really changed since Matt was alive, especially in Laramie, Wyoming. I feel like, you know, in a lot of parts of the country, Matt would still not be accepted to this very day. But Matt has been very accepted into my heart. This is a story that has been an important one to me for a while. I'm glad that I took the time to further research and write this episode and share it all with you. I hope that it was as moving for you all as it was for me. 
If there's anything else that you would like for me to cover this month, please reach out to me. You can email me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at angryneighborhoodfeminist. Please, please, please send in your coming out stories. I'm not going to go off on my tangent again because I already did that in the beginning of the episode, but I would really, really appreciate it if you could get those stories to me as soon as possible. I will be recording the episode on June 23rd, so please have all of the stories into me by then. You can join Patreon by going to patreon.com slash angryneighborhoodfeminist or click on the link in the bio in the show notes or on the Instagram page. Leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify if you want to. And before I sign out, happy pride. I love you all for exactly who you are, however you identify, whoever you love. I celebrate you this month and I love you very much. All right, that's all I have for you today. With all that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye. When the cameras stop rolling. Cut! Now your clients are calling cut. Only I call cut. That's a cut. The real terror begins. Don't be embarrassed about being scared. We're in a very scary situation. Go F yourself. I love this fur. You can't write that shit. Listen to I Love Lucifer wherever you get your podcasts.